Lord, open our hearts and minds that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as our scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 15 through 22. Hear now this holy word. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then Jesus said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. We enter into our story today in the midst of Jesus' final week. Perhaps you'll recall that just one chapter earlier, Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple of money changers. He's healing the blind and the sick. And as Jesus continues in his ministry in what will be his final week, the chief priests and the legal experts continue becoming angry at Jesus, continually questioning his authority. But let's be very clear. It's very important to remember that though Matthew highlights opposition that Jesus faced with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this does not mean that all Pharisees and all the teachers of the law were somehow blind to God's truth. In fact, quite the opposite. These individuals had devoted their lives to God, but we realize that this devotion to God was often expressed in different ways. There's no excuse to cast total blame on these Pharisees and teachers of the law. There's no excuse to demean the Jewish faith and tradition. After all, it was the tradition in which Jesus was raised and was thoroughly entrenched. Jesus is bringing a new interpretation to light, and in Matthew's perspectives and writings, this brought along frequent clashes with Jesus and others. And according to Matthew, this isn't new. It's been developing over the course of Jesus' ministry, but now in Jesus' final week, the conflict becomes amplified, and this amplified conflict is where we find ourselves today. Then the Pharisees plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. But we read that the Pharisees didn't entrap Jesus alone. Rather, they joined together with the Herodians, a highly unlikely coalition. The Pharisees were 
critical of the Roman government, whereas the Herodians were working within the government to support the Herodian dynasty, who acted as uh, a puppet on behalf of Rome. Two groups with almost nothing in common, but they come together in their shared dislike of this man named Jesus. Who knew one man could be so powerful? And their question they posed to Jesus wasn't an honest question either. They wanted to entrap Jesus, presenting him with an unwinnable situation. But to make things worse, they tried to disguise their trap in flattery. We know that you are sincere. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You show deference to no one. You do not regard people with partiality. We know you're going to give us your honest teaching because you are such a great teacher. So Jesus, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? In asking this question, we see why the Pharisees and the Herodians have teamed up. They expect Jesus to answer yes or no. Either way would be disastrous to Jesus' ministry. You see, if Jesus answers yes, it would imply that he's showing a deference to the empire, putting him in hot water with not only the Pharisees, but his own followers, so often subject to the strict rules and regulations imposed upon them. If he answers no, well, then he's placed in tensions with the Herodians, who surely would report back to Rome on this revolutionary anti-imperialist Jesus who plans to subvert the empire through tax evasion. In the question posed, Jesus cannot win. And this was the goal of the question. But Jesus, as so often as he does, sees right through their entrapment. Before even answering the question, Jesus turns the trap back onto his questioners. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus asks. Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Aha! Jesus has once again flipped the tables. These religious leaders produced for him a denarius, the coin typically used for the empire tax. Presumably, Jesus didn't have one, or he would have just pulled out a coin himself. But the religious leaders produced one for him. And it wasn't too different from our own coins, our own money we use today, not too different from the penny you received this morning. The coin was stamped with an icon of the emperor, inscribed with Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Given the coin ascribes the empire of the Roman Empire as God. Even having the coin within the temple itself was unlawful. The religious leaders have fallen into their own trap. You can imagine Jesus holding up the coin and saying, whose head, whose title? Perhaps the Pharisees and Herodians are looking down at their feet, embarrassment, running over them. The emperors, they respond. Well, case closed. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperors and give to God the things that are God's. It's a simple answer, right? Wrong. It seems rather that Jesus' answer was no answer at all. Jesus' answer is ambiguous. 
it never fails that around this time of the year when this passage comes up in the church's cycle of readings, often as we approach elections, Jesus is often made out to be simply a revolutionary political figure or someone who always defers to the political authorities of the land. But these interpretations seem too easy, though. We're certainly not as constrained as the Jews under Roman occupation, but it seems the structures of our world can often hold us captive, feeling like our occupations own us. Running that daily grind of the rat race of life, constantly pursuing material status and wealth, because after all, the world in which we live is one that runs on pieces of paper and metal backed by the full faith and credit of our government. It's true that we operate in those systems, and as such we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but even more so, as Christians we're called to render to God that which is God's. And this certainly complicates things, doesn't it? Because now we have to ask the question, what belongs to God? Throughout Matthew's gospel, we're constantly reminded of the teachings of the kingdom of heaven, a theme that seems to be one of the core of Jesus' teachings throughout the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's, perhaps Jesus is reminding us that as followers of Christ, we hold a dual citizenship. Not only are we humans on earth, but also children of God's kingdom. Yes, we have both citizenships, but perhaps Jesus is calling us to evaluate which citizenship we hold in a higher regard. When Caesar's currency is evaluated in light of the kingdom, we are no longer functioning and organizing our world in dollars and cents, but are rather called to engage one another with kingdom currencies, with grace and love, compassion and justice. And I suspect that when Jesus was engaging the Pharisees and the Herodians in this discussion, he recalled the scriptures of Genesis. Surely they would have all been familiar with them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, God says. Rather than simply focusing on metal coinage stamped with the face of Caesar, Jesus calls us to remember that we are a beautiful creation of life, imprinted, stamped, just like a coin, with the image of God, that we are all indeed God's creation, that our entire self belongs to God. As such, we are called to give to God our entire life, showing service to God and God's world in utilizing our kingdom currencies, our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service and our witness as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. How are we praying for one another? Do we truly keep folks in our prayers when we say, I'll be praying? Or when we engage in our prayers, 
together in worship? Are we simply reading words on a page? What would it mean for the world if we truly lifted up our prayers to God? Praying for our church, our community, our denomination, and pressing matters facing the nation and world today. There's no shortage. How might you invest your prayers in hope of a better world? And our presence? Well, certainly we're gathered here together this morning, but how else could we show our presence as Christians in changing the world? Have we made visits as we are able to, to those who are ill or can't often leave their homes? Have we volunteered to read with the children just across the street at Swift Creek Elementary? Or maybe we can call that person we've noticed that's been gone from church for some time, not to simply convince them to come back to church on a Sunday, but to truly check in and see how it is with their soul. How might you invest your presence so that someone might glimpse the love of Christ? And what about our gifts? And not just the financial ones. Certainly, our financial gifts help continue the ministries of the church. Remember, we hold dual citizenship. But what other gifts have been given to you by God that you can use within the world? Perhaps consider taking a spiritual gifts inventory to see how you can best build up the body of Christ. What might it look like if we utilized the gifts God has given us to draw folks closer to Christ, to empower others, and to help heal and lead in the world? How do you serve? Not only within the church, but also in the world. So many wonderful ministries here at Macedonia. I think of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, and his general rule of doing good. How are we doing good in our community? I continue to be amazed by the wonderful new plans to utilize our asset of space here at Macedonia, creating a mental health collective for the community. In what ways can we help contribute to this ministry? Moreover, how can we serve our community by thinking through ways to support affordable housing, hunger, health care, public education? I am sure that you are thinking of ways, too, that we can be in service to our community. And our witness, when we embody a love of God and a love of neighbor, we show others around us who we claim as Lord and Savior. They will know we are Christians by our love. How are we working through love to show the world what it means to follow Jesus? When we use our prayers, our presence, our gifts, and our service, we stand as a public witness to God's beautiful activity in the world. How are our actions embodying God's love for all of God's creation? By engaging these kingdom currencies, we embody the work of God in the world, being able to work together to connect isolated people with God's family. 
And friends, at the end of the day, isn't calling someone a sister or brother in God's family worth so much more than that which the world tells us holds value? Living out our lives as an icon imprinted with the image of God certainly isn't attractive in the world in which we live. Never has been. But that is the work to which we are called. We are called to render to God what is God's, our full self, realizing that our life is a gift of service to one another, participating in a kingdom that our world calls upside down so that we can do the holy work of turning the world right side up. After Jesus says, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's, we are left with a rather interesting narratorial statement. Matthew says, when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. The statement leaves us with an important interpretive question. Why were the Pharisees and Herodians amazed? And now, as modern readers, as followers of Christ, why should we be amazed? On one hand, perhaps the gathered crowd was impressed with Jesus' answer. They could render to either empire or God based on what was most conducive to their goals in this earthly realm. Jesus' statement could be read in that way. And perhaps how, that's how the gathered crowd interpreted it. But what if we offered another reading of the text? Perhaps the gathered crowd was amazed not in the realization that they could continue on in the life they were living, but quite the opposite. Perhaps in that moment, they realized that rendering to God what is God's takes precedence over anything created or commanded by Caesar, that indeed their life was full of the very same breath, the very same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation so long ago when God created and called God's creation oh so very good. May it be so for us. Let us pray. Almighty God, be among us, show us your ways, and guide our steps. Live in us that we may be people of hope, hearing your words and challenging us to give you all which is yours. Call us to remember that each moment, each breath is from you, and let us share these gifts from the world through a showcase of your love. We ask all of this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Mm -hmm.